You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Well, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Today we are wrapping up our time in the letter of Colossians. And the month of July we will be returning to the book of Exodus. Um, Very, very excited about that. Um, But before we dive into this this morning, I want to simply read through the text where we're going to be this morning. We're going to read Colossians chapter 4 verses 2 through 6, and then I'm also going to read verses 12 and 18. So, look with me, Colossians 4, 2. Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may speak it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. So let's go back to the beginning and remember why this letter was even written, okay? Um, In Paul's day and time, there was a philosophy, a way of looking at things called syncretism. And syncretism was basically this idea that you could just take different religions, um, different ideas, um, and even maybe influences or pieces of the culture and uh, let them rub off on one another, or or as the name says, that you could take a piece of this religion and this faith and this idea and sync them together. Um, Maybe one of the best examples that I can think of in this day and time of this idea would be like the Unitarian Church, which ultimately would say, hey, we're all going to get to God somehow, so let's just get along and let's just love on each other while we're, we're waiting. We're all going to get there eventually. Wrong. So out of syncretism was born this idea called Gnosticism. And the Gnostics were wreaking havoc uh, in Colossae. And their thoughts and their ideas and their beliefs were beginning to penetrate into even the church. Um, Gnosticism said that there was this higher knowledge that you needed. Um, A Gnostic would have said in the church... Oh yeah, you need Jesus, but you also need higher knowledge. You need Jesus plus. Jesus plus the knowledge, then Jesus plus the obedience you would gain through the knowledge. Jesus plus. Well, Paul spends every letter that he ever writes saying, no, no, Jesus plus nothing is everything. You don't need to plus anything else into it. So Paul combats this by explaining that we don't change to earn the approval of God. Okay, We don't change to earn the approval of God. In Christ, 
we have already received approval from God, and because of this, we are transformed. And friends, if we don't understand this, we don't understand Christianity. Are you tracking with me? We don't change to earn the approval of God. If we could change to earn the approval of God, there would have been no need for Christ to come and die for our sins, rise from the dead, and atone for our sins. We could have just done it on our own. But that's not the way it works because we don't have that ability. However, praise God, in Christ and through his life, his death, his resurrection, his atonement for our sins, we receive approval from God and this transforms us. That's the basic understanding of what it means to be a Christian. When you read Colossians, there are these themes that kind of flow through it. And yes, they kind of move one from another, but they're married. Uh, You can't move from one theme and leave the, the last one behind. They all kind of come together. For instance, Paul talks about the knowledge of God, of of God giving us the wisdom to know who he is. He talks about the righteousness of Christ, that Christ is our righteousness because we cannot find it or create it on our own. Paul talks about the wisdom that comes from and through the Spirit. And then he moves in chapter 3, he kind of turns this corner and begins talking about for us what it means to be hidden in Christ and yet made alive in Christ. This is what the life of a Christ follower looks like. That's Colossians chapter 3. So I would ask you this morning a, a rhetorical question, but a pretty important question nonetheless. Do you believe this? Do you? Do you believe that you don't change to earn the approval of God, but that he gives us approval through his son Christ and that we need to know him so that we can find the righteousness of Christ and have the wisdom of the spirit and our life be hidden in Christ and that we are made alive in him. Do you believe these things? Praise God. And here's why I ask. Here's why I ask. In the, the year of our forefathers in 2010, seems like ages ago, doesn't it? It's just eight years ago. In 2010, these two bastions of journalistic excellence, USA Today and the Wall Street Journal, came together to do a survey. And what they wanted to know was what professing Christians, their lives, actually look like. They wanted to know not what they saw, but what's going on below the surface. And so thousands of professing Christians were asked some questions, and I'd like to share with you the answers, and then maybe you'll understand why I asked you the question I did just a moment ago. Of all the Christians surveyed, here are some of the statistics and the results. 65% rarely or never pray with others. Now, this doesn't mean that like 65% of the people don't stop on the sidewalk with a stranger who looks like they're really down and say, hey, brother, can I pray for you? This means 65% of the professing Christians never in any kind of corporate group pray. Moving on, 38% almost never pray, period. So track with me on this. 38% of the people who say, 
I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't talk to him. If that's the case, I would say, well, you know what? I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but I have a relationship with Tom Cruise and Bono. We're like this. Now, they don't know it, but I'm good with it. We're close. We're tight. Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? No. There's a permeating uh, implication and idea here that's sort of just silently and deceitfully gaining popularity. Okay? And that idea is this, that you can be a Christian without knowing Jesus Christ. And this idea is not just permeating and seeping into like our culture at large. Um, it's beginning to invade and infest the church. The popularity of this idea is almost as strong as the absurdity. Um, almost. But let me give you more proof that that idea is being accepted. Let's go back to the survey. 65% of the Christians surveyed rarely or never attend any type of worship gathering. So they do not see gathering with the body of Christ as a priority. Now how about a swift kick in the pants? 67% don't read the Bible. Now, I want you to notice that there's not a word rarely in there or do they seldom read the Bible. They don't read the Bible. That is baffling. 50%, half, are unsure of whether or not Jesus is the only path to God. So let's bring this one down to earth. Half of the people who claim to be following the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Half of the people claiming to follow him say, but I'm unsure as whether or not Christ is the only path to God. Do you know who you're following? 68% did not mention faith, religion, spirituality, or Jesus Christ when asked, what was really important in life. Are you beginning to get the picture here? Understand the implications of all of this. There's an overwhelming number of people out there, maybe in here, there's an overwhelming number of people out there who say, without saying, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. I really do. Now, I don't talk to him. I don't read or listen to what he says, much less obey it. But oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, I'm a Christian. I guess the only question that I know to ask is how? Yeah. How are you a Christian? Uh, I don't know that people would voice these things, but I begin to wonder, I mean, what is the idea that, well, I'm from the South, my mama took me to church. I drink sweet tea. I love Chick-fil-A. I'm a Republican. I'm not joking with you. I really don't know what the criteria has become for someone to evaluate. My life is now hidden in Christ. Last statistic. 
Only 40% of the evangelicals of the professing Christians polled believe that they have any responsibility to share the gospel with their neighbors, coworkers, family, or friends. Another rhetorical question, is it at all possible that the American church looks a whole lot like the Colossian church? Friends, cultural Christianity has cancer. It's actually on its deathbed. It's quickly dying. And this is a very, very good thing. Because we have a nation full of people who have invited Jesus into their heart, but have no more given them their life than anything else. There's this idea that, well, I invited Jesus into my heart. You need to show me where that's found in the Bible. Now, Paul says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart, if we believe with our mind, if we believe with our whole being that he is Lord, then we'll be saved. But there's not a little cavern where I'm inviting Jesus in for him to be at home and comfy there, and now I'm going to go on about my business. But apparently there's an overwhelming number of people who think that way. You, you no longer say you're a Jesus follower to gain acceptance. You know, 20, 30 years ago, if I'm a businessman in town, I'm going to go to church. So people know I'm a churchgoer. So my credibility looks good. That's not the case anymore. Uh, you, you don't say I'm a Jesus follower to gain any credibility. It doesn't work that way. But what's beginning to happen, uh, kind of like the United Kingdom, let's say 20 or 30 years ago, we're getting to a place where if you say you're a Christian, it's going to be because you are a Christian. So Paul is closing out this letter and he's wrapping up. Here is the identification and the characterization of the life of a Christ follower. Let's look for a few moments at, at what he says. Go back with me. Colossians 2, excuse me, Colossians 4, verse 2. Paul begins with, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Paul says what Jesus said, uh, what Luke writes, what Peter confesses. Paul says, consistently, persistently devote yourselves to, to prayer. If you have the NIV, I think that's actually how it's worded in the NIV. Devote yourselves to prayer. If you turn to Luke 18, Luke 18, 1, this is in the middle of Jesus telling parables. And you just look at what that verse says before Jesus even gets into the parable. It says, Jesus told them this parable to the effect, Jesus told them this parable so that they would understand they ought to always pray and not lose heart. And then Jesus shares the parable of the persistent widow. Jesus said, keep on praying and do not give up. If you turn to Acts chapter 1, Jesus has just ascended into heaven, back to the Father, the disciples are gathered together in Acts 1, and it says in verse 14, 
that all of them were in one accord devoting themselves to prayer. You flip a page over into Acts chapter 2. The gospel has been preached at Pentecost. Thousands have been saved. The New Testament church is beginning. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Later on in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Paul says it in two words. Pray consistently. Paul says, keep on praying. Pray without ceasing. This life of prayer ought to be the life that we are living. This constant communion and communication with God. And Paul says, continue in it. Devote yourselves to to it. Now look at verse 3. At the same time, while you're praying for yourself and your family and your friends and your church, while you're praying for those things, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which that's how I ought to speak. If you are the Apostle Paul, if I am the Apostle Paul, and I'm writing to the Colossians, and I'm saying, hey, by the way, when you're on your knees uh, today, uh, praying for yourself and for your family and for your coworkers and for your neighbors and for your church, uh, I'm going to ask you also to remember me, and here's what I want you to pray. If you and I are Paul, what are we going to ask them to pray? Get me out of here. I'm in prison, dang it not what Paul prays. He says, pray for opportunities. Listen to what John Piper says. We have tried to make a domestic intercom out of a wartime walkie-talkie. Prayer is not designed as an intercom between us and God to serve the domestic comforts of the saints. It's designed as a walkie-talkie for spiritual battlefields. Paul is in prison. He's sharing the gospel. Paul says, I will stay in prison if it means more opportunities to share the gospel. And he says, this is what I want you to pray for me, that the Lord will open more doors for me to declare the mystery of Christ. Paul is saying, without even saying it here to the Colossians and to us, this ought to be our prayer for ourselves as well. God, open the doors of opportunity that I might share the gospel, that I might proclaim the gospel, that I might declare the mystery of Christ. God, that I might share it with someone who so desperately needs it. But friends, let me give you a window into some of maybe why we do and we don't do what we do and we don't do. Our share life is directly impacted by our prayer life. The level at which you and I share the gospel and proclaim the mystery of Christ to those around us, it's going to reveal Uh, the depth of our prayer life. If we don't spend time asking the Lord, begging God, Lord, prepare me 
bring me opportunities that I might share the gospel, we will not be preparing and watching for those opportunities to come. We won't. So if you and I, if we ever get through our week and we think, man, what did I do this week? Why did I not like claim the name of Christ to anyone? Why did I not take the opportunity to share with the people around me Go back and evaluate how much time you spent in communion with the Father. But I love what Paul says here because he doesn't just say so that we might share the gospel. I love in this letter, right here in this instance, where he says that I might declare the mystery of Christ. What's he talking about? Like, what, What's the mystery? See, the gospel isn't a mystery because... Um, God has made it confusing or obscure, like some kind of tricky riddle my kids like to throw out at me at the dinner table, knowing I will never figure this out. And I just spend time chewing and staring at them just so they'll think maybe I'm on to something. That's not how God's laid out the gospel. Here's the, the mystery of it, though. It's a mystery because you and I and no one ever would have known it if God hadn't chosen to reveal it. But he did. The only reason you and I have heard the gospel and know the gospel and believe the good news of what Christ has done is because God chose to reveal it to us. That the Son became one of us. That He chose to live a life of humility and poverty and love. That He would die in place of of sinners and bear the curse of the law, though He Himself was without sin. We wouldn't know this if God hadn't revealed it to us, that Christ rose from the dead and that he reigns today, that the ungodly might somehow be justified by faith, not through how many good things we can do to impress him, nope, but by belief in the fact that Christ has done that for us. That Jew and Gentile, red and yellow, black and white, have all been reconciled back to God and to one another through Christ. That's a profound mystery. That Christ would choose to leave us so that the Spirit could come and dwell in our hearts and seal our hearts for His glory. That's the mystery of Christ and that's what we are called to declare and proclaim. Well, how do we do this? Verse 5. Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. If you really just read the Greek there, Paul says to buy every opportunity, like lay down money for every opportunity that you can get. Make the best use of the time toward those around you who do not know Christ. Let your speech always be gracious. That always word, that is a punch to the face for me. Seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's go back to John Piper for a moment. He says in reference to these two verses, This is one of the most refreshing things I have ever heard anyone say about personal evangelism. Think about it for a moment. 
How can you develop the ability to speak about Christ so that there's any appetizing flavor to it? How do you learn to talk about Christ in a way that makes people's mouths water? I think the answer is simply to spend time every day reminding yourself from Scripture why the gospel tastes good to you. Some of us who have been Christians for a long time begin to neglect the crucial business of enjoying Christ. Then an opportunity comes along to commend him to someone and we realize that all the reasons he is wonderful have been neglected and the keenness of our own taste buds have grown very dull. It's hard to salt your speech with the deliciousness of Jesus when you haven't been enjoying the taste yourself. So the wonderful thing about Paul's advice here is the best way to prepare to be an advertisement for the satisfying taste of Jesus is to enjoy him yourself. Every day we should go to the Bible and look for reasons why Christ is the greatest thing in the world. And when we get up off our knees with our hearts delighting in him, we will be in the best position to make our speech appetizing for Christ. Friends, we have what the world needs. If you turn to John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. In John chapter 4, verse 14, I'm going to begin actually in verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water in this well, you come out here with a bucket, you fill it up, you pour it down your throat, it doesn't matter, you're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And you know that the Samaritan woman says, then give me some of that water. You turn the page to John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus says to his disciples, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Friends, you and I, have been invited to the table to dine with the Most High God. And we've got the living water, we've got the bread of life. And there are people that we know who are still eating scraps out in the alley like a dog. I think at some point, God breaks the meal and says, okay, go get the dogs. Go back to where you once were. Somebody else is there. Go find them. Go tell them how good the meal is. Paul says, pray. Pray that God will constantly open doors of opportunity for the gospel and that we will have the courage, the faith, and the obedience to walk through those doors and courageously declare the mystery of Christ. Wisely and intentionally approach every day, every moment, every conversation that you have with those who don't yet believe. And don't withdraw from the world. It won't work if you withdraw from the world. You see, we started a few minutes ago talking about syncretism, this idea that you can just take a little bit of this faith and this religion and this idea and just swirl them together and we'll all just be happy. We're all going to get to God eventually, but leave everybody else alone. 
Well, kind of the opposite end of that would be sectarianism. This idea that, oh my gosh, the world's infected. I got to keep my kids and my family in here. I got to cordon us off. We can't see any of that. Don't put it in front of us. We don't want to be near it. We don't want that disease of sin. There's a failure to understand on the part of sectarianism that, hey, sorry, sin's already in the door because it's in you. We can't cordon ourselves off either. If we are to walk in wisdom, if we are to walk wisely toward outsiders, think about this, we can't walk away from outsiders, right? Can't walk toward and away at the same time. I don't even know what that is. Is that physics? It doesn't work. Just go toward. John chapter 17. We're about to wrap up here. John 17, Jesus knows that he is about to be arrested and crucified. And he is praying with and for his disciples. And he says, John 17, verse 15, Father, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I am sending them. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. I set myself apart that they also may be sanctified in truth. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to say to this church, to these people that he had never met in person face to face, But there's this guy named Epaphras that Paul discipled. And Paul's a discipler of disciplers. Epaphras started this church. Epaphras is with Paul. Paul says, hey, the one who loves you dearly says that he prays for you constantly. This letter is about understanding that the fullness of God is found in Jesus Christ. That we have living water, that we have bread of life, that we have been invited to commune together with the Father and proclaim this hope to others. Let's close by reading together from Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. Because this, if you have to point to something that says, what is the driving force of this letter, these two verses are it. For in Christ, in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Christ, the fullness of God dwells. And you, as His people, as His followers, as His church, you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and all authority. Amen. Let's pray together.
Father, we are, are aware, first of all, that there are a lot of people around us. Whether they're our next door neighbors, uh, the person who works in the office or the cubicle next to us, that other family on our kids' team, maybe even our family members. Lord, we know that there are people around us who they are lost and they don't know you. They don't know that the name of Jesus Christ changes everything. Lord, they don't, they don't know that in you is, is really truly found all that they are looking for and hoping for. Lord, would you give us opportunity and courage Lord fill us with wisdom and the words to declare the mystery of Christ the hope of the good news of what you have done Lord but Lord we also pray for those around us who think they know you Father, we pray that they would come to see that our faith, it bears fruit. Lord, that the Spirit testifies within us that we belong to the Father. That we belong to you, Lord. That our lives look different. That our, our hope and faith they're unshakable because they are in you. Even in the midst of our valleys, God, and our rebellions, even in the midst of our doubts, As we respond to the Lord this morning, uh, we have the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper. Um, it's a great thing this morning that Anne was baptized because these two things are a very, very special part of who we are and what we do as a church. We know that neither one of these two things save us, but they are a great symbol of the salvation we have received. That baptism is a symbolism that we are now dead to sin and we come up out of that water. We have been made alive in Christ. We have been washed through what the blood of Christ has done. The Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to take the cup and the bread and to remember as we eat that bread that Christ, his body was broken for us. And as we take that cup to remember that his blood was shed for us. 
So we invite you this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, um, whether you come alone or with a friend or with your family, to take that bread, that cup, and take a moment and remember what Christ has done. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity today to worship you together as the body of Christ. Be lifted up. Be exalted, Lord. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.